Welcome to episode 256 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Saturday, 5th of September, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Today's show is a conversation with two blokes called Ian. I'm Carlton Reed, and I've been talking with record-breaking, ultra-endurance cyclist Ian Walker. I've also been talking with environmental psychologist Dr Ian Walker. As you'll hear, they sound awfully similar. The first part of the show delves into close overtakes of cyclists and why motorists park on the infrastructure meant for pedestrians. The second part is a dissection of Ian Walker's brilliant new book, Endless Perfect Circles. There's a little bit of psychology in this book, but it's mostly and gloriously an account of his surprise discovery that he's actually quite good at sport specifically riding very long distances, fast, over multiple days and without support. Ian was a high-placed finisher in the transcontinental race, won the North Cape 4000 and then last year set a new Guinness World Record for riding across Europe north to south. For relaxation, he rides 650 miles around the whole of Wales in a long weekend. I read Ian's book and loved it. Not only is he a great writer, he's a great writer too. The book includes a neat Jedi mind trick that anybody who turns up at hotels with a bike will use forevermore. And we discuss why it works. So here's my chat with the first of those two Ians. So I have absolutely, really, 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 as have many people, enjoyed your book. Oh, thank you. And I absolutely do want it. I do want to discuss it. I do want to. I want to, I'm actually going to quote loads of things back to you, okay? Because <laughs> it was very funny. I'm going to quote lines back to you, and you can even read it out in your own voice, so we can hear the lines from you, which would be quite good. But I, because of who you are, yes, okay. So everybody now knows you, of course, not as your uh, your super intellectual self, but your physical self, your your long distance endurance amazing feats, Ian. Um, we will get onto that, of course. But I want to start with your the intellectual Ian, the brain Ian. And I want you to tell us what you do for a living. When you're not in that cottage, when you're at university, what do you actually do? I do research on uh, a, well, a variety of environmental psychology issues. So there's a, there's a strand of this that's probably not very interesting to your listeners, which is I do work on 
uh, energy consumption and water consumption and that kind of thing and how we can help people use less. Oh, exactly. oh excuse me. As excuse predicted, me. Oh, yeah. as predicted. But probably more interesting to you and your listeners is I also do work on travel, transport. Uh, I try to encourage healthy, uh, active travel modes. And I do work on traffic safety, especially for vulnerable road user groups like cyclists. So to, to lots of people, and I know you've had probably about 10,000 citations on this. Uh, you can tell us how many citations you've had, in fact, because I'm sure you know this. But you, you came to probably my attention, to everybody's attention um, a long time ago. And you can tell us when that was. But you were wearing a dark wig. You weren't wearing a blonde wig. So that's the mistake lots of people make. It was a dark wig. But what were you wearing a dark wig for, Ian? Well, that was part of a a series of experiments uh, trying to get an idea of whether anything you did on a bicycle made a difference to the people overtaking you in the street. So the thing I was particularly setting out to look at was uh, the riding position. So did it matter how far to the left or to the right I was riding in terms of how much space I would be left by passing drivers? Um, But as I was doing that, Uh, Various people suggested other things that I could look at. And so I incorporated all of those into the study. So, for example, I incorporated uh, notoriously whether wearing a helmet made any difference to how much space people left. And also at the really last minute, I think about three people just said, do you know, it'd be really interesting to see if men and women are treated differently. And so sure enough, I went to a local novelty shop and bought this long, dark wig and... um, rode around either with or without the wig. Basically, I'd I'd ride to the end of the street, uh, reach into my pannier, whip this wig out, stick it on, go up and down the street again, hide the wig. And I did this over and over for several days. And uh, sure enough, got quite a bit more space on average from passing drivers when I had the wig on. And you put that down to? Probably something about uh, people's stereotypes about riders. So, um, you know, it's hard to pin down an absolute 100% definitive answer, but it's probably something to do with people holding, you know, very unfair stereotypes that women riding uh, need more consideration than men. And wobbly riders, that kind of thing. So if somebody sees somebody wobbling up ahead, they'll give them more space. Do you know, we've never tested wobbly riders specifically. Uh, although an interesting development is we've got a paper hopefully coming out literally any day now, um, which was done with uh, a series of Belgian researchers who got in touch with me. Uh, and what we did there was we tested something that a lot of people have anecdotally talked about. Uh, we tested child seats and thankfully the results went the right way that uh, riding with a child seat led to more consideration from passing drivers, which is uh, the way round I think we all hope it would be. Yes. So even if you've got a rucksack in your your child seat, you haven't got the child at that moment. So this is this is a safety tactic you could use even without a child, Ian. This is just something, just put a, a child seat on and you'll get uh, motorists will pass you wider. It, it certainly appears that way. I mean, maybe sticking a dummy in there might be the best approach of all to really uh, make sure people pay attention. So I'm now imagining airplane with like the the inflatable child in the in the back seat. <laughs> oh, exactly. So p- p- 
people have replicated your study. Yeah, a lot of people have have uh, done similar studies. So one of the things, so I've done two sort of big studies of overtaking distance. And during the second, one of the things that I was able to do was develop a really quite simple, low cost, easy to produce device that you can stick on a bike and measure how much space drivers leave. And that's all open source. That's just on the web. If you want to make one, you can make one. It would cost less than 100 euros. Um, And so that's been kind of exciting. And what's been really nice is to see people run with that. So I've seen several uh, groups over the last two or three years who've taken that and gone further with it. They've added extra sensors or uh, ways of gathering additional data points. Um, And so the whole thing has become really quite democratized. It's very easy for anybody to go out and collect data on how much space they get left. And has that research gone away from the, the, the small field of cycling and then got into transport research in general? So this could actually, you know, make real world differences because, you know, design things are being put in place because it's got into outside of cycling. Well, it's interesting you say that. So one of the things that I've really come to conclude from quite a lot of years of looking at this issue of how drivers interact with cyclists on the road is there is nothing that a cyclist can do to guarantee that they will be safe. Uh, And that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, In particular, it seems there's always going to be uh, a, a really difficult minority of drivers who just will not behave safely. So I've really come to realize that if there's only one way to guarantee safety, which is segregation, get the cars off somewhere safe where they can't hurt anybody and let cyclists travel safely without having to mix. Uh, Now, obviously, there are all sorts of issues with that. Like um, there will still be places where mixing is necessary. We're not going to get networks of cycleways that go to every single address in the country. So we still need to solve some of these problems of mixing. But... Ultimately, given that you can never trust motorists to entirely do the right thing all the time, uh, some level of segregation and good quality infrastructure really seems to be necessary. And so that's why it's been so exciting. And I'm sure you've been part of this as well. It's been so exciting seeing the UK government recently uh, issuing quite strong guidance on what cycle infrastructure should look like. And I think all of us over here who uh, work in promoting cycling have been quite excited to see central government for the first time saying infrastructure needs to be high quality it needs to work for everybody it can't just start and stop you can't just slap a bit of paint on the road and call it infrastructure um it's been really exciting to see these developments happening well you've mentioned those developments and that's that's immediately made me then think of grant chaps which is not something i do all the time uh i, I do hasten to add but he yesterday, uh, uh, or a couple of days beforehand, uh, when, when we were recording, he uh, announced that the government is now looking perhaps more closely, and I find this very exciting, uh, looking more closely at uh, the issue of sidewalk parking, pavement parking. And that then brings me on to the, the, the next thought uh, trip that I had was, well, you did this uh, very, very interesting uh, and fascinating blog posting, God knows how long ago, a long time ago, but I know I always refer to, whenever I refer to this issue, I always refer to your excellent, excellent blog posting, 
And that's where you put a big, well, you tell us what you do, but you put a crate on the on the road. And, 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 and why do people do that with cars? So explain that blog posting. Yeah, well, that was actually, I think, 12 years ago, which is really depressing, back when I had dark hair and, and <laughs> enthusiasm. Um, yeah, so that was kind of a thought experiment at the time. It was, uh, I realised, you know, it, it, I was struck by one of the many double standards that we seem to have about motoring, which is if I had any other item whatsoever and I had nowhere to store it, I would not be allowed just to dump it in the road and expect it still to be there the next day. Um, and so I used the example of a crate that was, you know, sort of two meters by three meters or something like that, but the same dimensions as a car. So if I had a, a big box or uh, a, a settee, a sofa, uh, if I had a, a caravan, you know, anything at all that I needed to store and I didn't have space on my own land, um, nobody would tolerate me just leaving it in the road, blocking traffic. But the moment it is a car, we all think that's completely acceptable. And so my point there was to try and illustrate that uh, slightly crazy double standard. And the other thing I mentioned as a little addendum to that essay was uh, I was struck by another really good example from the world of transport. So quite a few years ago, I lived for a while on a boat on the English Canal River system, and what's interesting there is that they operate a completely opposite system. On the canals, you are not allowed just to, just to leave your boat there. Uh, you're only allowed a license to have a boat if you solemnly swear to keep moving and never stay anywhere for any length of time. Um, you know, just freeloading by saying, well, I've got a boat and I'm just going to store it here in people's way is, not, is specifically not allowed. And yet we do it on the roads. Mm. So that's that's separate to the pavement parking issue, but it is just this entitlement issue of, yeah, I'm going to park my my private property where the hell I like. And then I, when, when it comes onto the pavement issue, it's like, and I'm going to leave it on the, 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 the place where people are trying to get past with double buggies and guide dogs. Uh, which we, if you might hear in this the, later in the show, when my guide dog uh, probably comes back in the house. Um, and pedestrians, so motorists just have this, many motorists, not all, but we, we, must, we must stress that, have this entitlement complex, that which is a psychological condition, Ian. Well, I don't know, because my experience with uh, the motoring side of things is more as an observer. So I, um, you know, asking motorists what they're thinking is actually really difficult, because when you do that, um, you often find that the answers you're given are not the right answers. So, you know, partly because um, people don't know why they do what they do. Uh, so a big part of this is that, and I think any of us who are interested in traffic will appreciate this, what we see in the motoring context is people just unconsciously imitate one another. So, you know, it starts with one person just bumping a couple of wheels up onto the pavement, onto the sidewalk, because um, they're worried about, um, slowing the flow of traffic. Uh, and then, you know, within six months, other people start noticing this and thinking, oh, yeah, I'll do that as well. Um, and then, you know, another six months, everyone's doing it because they imitate one another. And then another six months later, the cars are completely across the pavement. Um, there is this very strong tendency to just unconsciously imitate one another as social beings. And that's a big part of what goes on in traffic. But people are not aware 
of just how much they unconsciously imitate each other. And so what the problem is, as soon as you ask somebody, why have you just done this particular thing? The answer you get is going to be one that's often just constructed on the spot as a a, a way of trying to answer the question. But you, the, the answer might not be valid because the, the behavior was the subconscious imitation of other people or a, a subconscious um, assertion of entitlement or something like that, uh, rather than a considered decision to behave in a particular way. Uh, but the explanation you get when you ask somebody why they did it will be as if it were deliberately considered and chosen. And so the explanation won't really be the right one for the behaviour. Which might mean if the government, and I'm touching wood here, if the government did actually bring in some more uh, London style, even though it does happen in London, more London style draconian um, fines for people parking on on the sidewalk, on the pavement, that might actually change behaviour of that uh, bulk of the population which are doing it unthinkingly. You're going to get the radicals who are always going to want to park on, on, on the pavement. But a good bunch of people are just doing it for the reason you just said. They're, just, they're not thinking about it. They're just doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's what we'd really hope is going to happen. You can see how it how it's come about that this, you know, let's face it, fairly antisocial behavior has become normalized. Because if you're in your car and you need to stop at a shop or a house or something like that, um, it's more convenient for you to just bump it up on the pavement job done, off you go, get about your day. Um, and if you, you have essentially been licensed or permitted to do this in com- this convenient thing because everybody else is doing it and nobody has ever told you not to, then of course you're going to do what's easy and convenient. People fundamentally do what is easy and convenient. Um, so a, a clear message from government saying, okay, look, this is no longer acceptable. This is causing problems for a lot of people, uh, especially people in many cases whose lives already have enough problems. Um, the central message is going to um, show that it's less acceptable. That should start to eat into the number of people who are doing it. Once it's less common and normal, that eats into that subconscious copying tendency. And hopefully it will be the small snowball that starts the big change. So I'm not hopeful because nope. there have been many, many um, uh, reviews into this over the years. There's, there's, there's all sorts of, um, it's probably about every 10 years, there's a government review into this and the government, you know, farms it out. And then they say, right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to uh, go with the recommendations that the, the panel gives. The panel comes back and says, well, ban pavement parking then. And the government says, oh, oh, well, yes, we'll better not do that. So I, I'm not terribly hopeful, but it's a, it's a kind of like it's it, the signs that it could some changes could be afoot. Because why would Grant Chaps float these things if he wasn't going to do some tweaking? Yeah. But yeah. Like, and you're right. And there will be resistance. I mean, uh, when it comes to traffic issues, I keep finding myself coming back to that phrase that's often used in very different contexts of when all you've known is privilege, equality feels like mm-hmm. oppression. And, you know, we see with a lot of motorists that as soon as you say um, you've got to have some responsibility for your actions, there's this knee jerk. Oh, my God, you're taking something away from me 
anger approach. And we're going to see that as we ask people to no longer inconvenience other people for their own convenience, because they're just so used to having the world accommodate them coming first. And we're seeing that right now with the low traffic neighborhoods Mm. concept in that I've asked on Twitter for genuine examples of people who have been cut off. They can't motor. They can't get out of their house. They can't uh, go where they previously could go. Show me a, a genuine example of where you have been blocked in into your driveway by a low traffic neighborhood. And of course, nobody can. Because it's hyperbole. It's, you know, literally they've just got to spend another five minutes maybe going around. But then John Crace, the journalist, the Guardian journalist, put in one of his columns last week the exact same thing. The, you know, I, you know, motorists are now blocked from getting anywhere. And I challenged him and said, well, c- come on, can you please show me a map where you are genuinely blocked in by these, wonder about a phrase, the modal filters, the, the, the bollards and stuff. And he hasn't responded. And I'm assuming he has seen, because there's an awful lot of fuss that, that got mm. kicked up when he said this and when I said that this is what he said. And I, I'll probably approach him uh, offline to see if he will say these things because these low traffic neighborhoods, they're not genuinely stopping people going anywhere. They're just making it slightly more inconvenient if you choose to do a 500 meter journey in a car. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this, but somebody on Twitter made the good point that the percentage difference it will make to your journey is completely related to how long your journey was in the first place. So if you're leaving your home in a city centre and driving to another town, it's not going to make any real difference. Uh, Whereas if you're leaving your home in a city centre and driving 500 metres to buy a newspaper, it's as a percentage of your journey time, the hit is going to be quite substantial. But that should be the sign that your journey maybe needed reconsidering in the first place. But you are asking people to, in that case, modify their behaviour. And as a psychologist, you know that's that's kind of tough because these are ingrained behaviours. Mm, it's true. But one of the things that um, I've really come to realise over the recent years is fundamentally the geographers had it right all along and we psychologists didn't. Uh, Because if you want to know about why people behave the way they do in travel, um, it's mostly about the physical environment. The physical environment shapes the way we travel more than what we think. We might kid ourselves that our travel behaviours are rational, deliberate, considered choices, but really, they're in much bigger part, they're in most cases, a response to the built environment. If the built environment makes something easy and convenient, people are going to do it. If the built environment makes something difficult and feel dangerous, people are not going to do it. And of course, for those of us who are interested in promoting walking and cycling, what does the built environment do? It makes it difficult, slow and feel dangerous. And right there is the problem. Mm. So let's let's talk about Smidzy for a second. Um, so sorry, mate, I didn't see you. Uh, but what you were saying before, in effect, was there's another category of, yeah, yeah, I absolutely saw you. Yeah, but I want to kill you. So there's a small <laughs> subsection of motorists who, as, as you know, Andy Cox, the, the, the superintendent, uh, and, and West Midlands police have found out, there's an awful lot of people who are doing this deliberately. 
So mm. is the only way we can mitigate against that literally having cycleways? Ooh, good question. I mean, I think on the one hand, uh, j- just as for context here, it's another example of the kind of strange double standard that exists in our culture in context of cars. So I did a, a long ride with a friend this weekend and we had several instances of people using their vehicles as weapons against us, uh, simply riding along a road and people swerved their cars at us or screamed abuse at us as they passed for doing nothing wrong whatsoever. Now, as my friend and I were commenting later, I'm sure every single one of those people is perfectly nice in any other context. I'm sure they all think of themselves as perfectly decent people. And I'm sure several of them probably do lovely things like giving to charity or volunteering. Um, It's just our culture has this toxic strand where as long as you're in a car, all bets are off and it's suddenly okay to behave like this. So, for example, the person in the large Mercedes who uh, flew right past us whilst leaning on their horn for no reason whatsoever on an otherwise empty road, I, I can guarantee that when they next go in a shop and have to stand in a queue, they will not scream at the person in front of them to get out of their way. Uh, whereas that's what they felt it was perfectly okay to do to two guys on bikes. Um, so we have this very weird, messed up cultural problem with driving that uh, that condones and encourages and permits otherwise completely normal people to behave in deeply aggressive and dangerous and antisocial ways. Um, and I, I, I'm afraid I've forgotten the rest of your question because I was going off on a rant about that. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll actually just segue into, into what you've just said there, actually, rather than go backwards. And that is... Um, that that behavior, uh, that weird Jekyll and Hyde behavior that you have when you when you get behind the wheel of a car, mm. of course, was very much uh, recognized and parodied uh, by Disney. And it must mm. have been 1950s, 1960s. I'm sure you know it. The famous uh, Mr. Wheeler, Goofy, yes. Mr. Walker and mm-hmm. Mr. Wheeler. So Mr. Walker is the sweet mannered, lovely pedestrian, which you've just kind of mentioned. People are like that in real life. And then as soon as he got behind the wheel of a car, psychologically, Mr. Uh, Walker changed into Mr. Wheeler, who was this uh, awful, aggressive character who just... So that is that is that what it is? It's that, it's that trigger. It's getting behind the wheel of a car and then you feel something different. Well, apparently, yes. I mean, I've never personally studied this in detail. Um, and I do have one or two colleagues who... Um, do work on driver anger. Um, and yeah, ultimately, from, from what I've seen of their work, it, it does seem irrational. It seems um, anger in drivers is often triggered by things that in any other context would not be permissible. So, for example, a, a minor delay to your journey uh, is seen as a legitimate cause of becoming angry. Um, And this is why I think the real explanation doesn't sit within a person's head. The real explanations for this sit at the level of our culture. You know, we have um, a strange cultural double standard um, about almost every aspect of motoring. One part of which is it's perfectly fine to be aggressive and 
to assault people as long as you do it with a car. And we are seeing it to absolutely horrific effect in America at the moment, mm. you know, with these big, big muscle SUVs going through the city of Portland with the driver, <laughs> as, if as if they're not aggressive enough, then they're macing people out to the window. And then, of course, you've got the president saying, well, they're patriots doing that. You think, oh, my God, that behavior is going to be so cemented in people. Mm. Well, I mean, it fits into a slightly wider picture as well, doesn't it, of you know, something that society has wrestled with for literally thousands of years is how do we reconcile people's freedoms when they're not when they're in conflict with each other so how do we reconcile uh my freedom to drive whatever i want however i want with your freedom to be safe from the consequences of that and your freedom to not breathe poisoned air and things like this and ultimately the way we've addressed that that conflict between your freedom and my freedom for quite a long time in countries like ours and countries like the United States has been to say, uh, well, if you've bought the car, your freedoms are more important than the person who isn't in the car. So the person who's not in the car will be at the edge of the road, uh, in their space at the edge of the road. The person who's not in the car will pause and wait until the person in the car has got out of the way. Uh, before crossing the road. The person who's not in the car will make a special journey to a designated crossing point so as not to inconvenience the person in the car. Um, and hopefully the various things we've been talking about here today, you know, the ideas coming from Grant Shapps, the LTN 120 guidance for uh, promoting active travel, I'd really like to believe that these are the beginning of a swing in the opposite direction where we say, well, yeah, you know, the person who just wants to walk down the street, their freedoms are important too. Their freedom to make a journey, their freedom to breathe clean air, their freedom to be able to go to the shop without their life being in danger. Uh, hopefully, we're seeing a rebalancing towards those freedoms being taken as seriously as the freedom of. Yeah, and I'm good. I'm doing air quotes here. The <laughs> freedom to drive what you like. Uh, well, we've now got into not just. Um... Uh, recent government announcement have gone back thousands of years into into <laughs> absolutely <laughs> what how, how we classify freedom uh, but at this juncture Ian I would now like to cut for a commercial break and we will be back however uh, to talk about your absolutely fantastic book Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge 
of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, thanks, David. And we are back with uh, Ian Walker. Uh, in the first half of the show, he, he, we went through his psychological uh, training and background. And in the second half uh, of this show, we're going to switch completely different lives. It's almost as though we're having like Mr. Wheeler and Mr. Walker conversation here. We've got two different people. We've got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde here in that the psycholog- uh, psychologist Ian is different to this other guy, this athlete, Ian, who uh, these, these are two different people you would, you would think. So Ian, you've written this brilliant book. It's called Endless Perfect uh, Circles. And I'm going to be asking you questions that I know the answer to because you've written them down <laughs> in your book. I'm still going to ask them. So I will, I will carry on asking them. But, but first of all, so this is, this is a story about uh, a number of endurance uh, rides you've done and, and, and runs. So some running in there too. But just tell me, um, how did you get into uh, long distance endurance sports in the first place? Well, I, I basically did it very late. Um, so what I've explained at the start of this book is I went to a fairly poor school where you know, most things were not really encouraged. So they certainly weren't very good at uh, encouraging people to learn. Uh, but also in particular, um, the teachers there had no real ability to push or encourage people to have a go at sport. And so basically the short version is I came out of school uh, 16, 18 years old, absolutely convinced that I had no ability to do sport whatsoever. And I hung on to that perception for something like 25 years. And then shortly after turning 40, uh, I got encouraged to have a go at a long running race, which I did on a spur of the moment decision and went, yeah, okay, yeah, let's do it, uh, when a friend invited me. And from that point on, I did this first long distance running race uh, and actually did reasonably well at it. And one of the things that I keep coming back to across the course of this book is uh, how long it took me to to go from 25 years of thinking I could not do anything sporty to realizing I was actually reasonably good at certain sports and just how difficult it was to claw back 25 years of misperception on that count. And and you are not just kind of okay at it. You're a, a, a record holder. Uh, so you can tell us about that, uh, the, the, the way you, you, you didn't... You were going to go one way across Europe and then you decided to go north-south uh, to, to Europe. Well, tell us about all the different rides you've done. So let's get into the cycling. Talk about the the, the, the record-breaking uh, across Europe, but then also tell us about the, you know, the transcontinental and all the right races that you've done and, and where you came in them, for instance. Well, it was so I was very, very happily doing long-distance running. Um And I'd found this wonderful world full of amazing, friendly, accommodating people, everyone's so encouraging. Uh, And then I stumbled across a photo essay on the Strava website about a race called the Transcontinental Race. And this essay just 
revealed to me uh, a whole new world of of scale. So I'd done running races that take, you know, maybe a day or so. And at the time, running for an entire day feels vast. It feels like this huge um, event. But then I started reading this essay and realized that there was a world of cycling races that went to a whole new level. And that if I was to start riding a bike, I could do events that didn't last a day. I could do events that maybe lasted two weeks. And I just got absolutely hooked on on this idea of of just handing myself over, just like putting my life on hold for one or two weeks or more, and just taking part in a race that that is your whole world for that period. And so I entered the transcontinental race uh, back in 2017 uh, or 2017 and, you know, just threw myself in at the deep end again. Basically, I bought a bike, started riding, um, threw myself in the race and did a lot better than I thought I would. I I certainly not troubling the winner, but um, I was up sort of fairly high in the field despite having lots and lots of punctures and breakdowns and Uh, getting stranded in Romania and things like this. Um, And so the following year, I decided to have a go at another race of the same sort, which is called the North Cape 4000. Uh, That race, it's similar, bikepacking, self-supported, hundreds of riders set off from the north of Italy, and it's a race to the very top of Norway. So the very, very last point in Europe, if you're heading north, called North Cape. Uh, So it's about 4,300 kilometres and basically, again, I set out just with a view of, let's see what happens. And then there was this really astonishing turning point partway through the race where I realized that if I was bold and if I really, really pushed myself, I had a chance to get into the lead of the race. And I'd never done anything like this before. And you've got to remember this 25 years of thinking I didn't do sport. Uh, to suddenly find myself in that decision point of you know, flipping heck, okay, I'm I'm actually in a position here where I could take the lead in an international race, um, and it and to, to do that to make that jump re- required opening quite a few new doors. It involved partly just pushing myself physically much further than I ever had in the past, but also it really did involve throwing off this mental baggage of believing that I was a person who could not compete. Um, and so, you know, taking part in that race just was transformational because I made that decision. I made that decision of, right, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's just see what happens if I try to win, if I try to do sport properly. And so I threw myself in. Um, there was a rather, well, for, for an outsider, thrilling and for me, nerve-wracking um, section of about five days or so uh, of being in the lead of the race to the finish. And uh, I could, in the book, I refer to it as the thousand-mile breakaway, and it genuinely was a thousand miles of me riding as hard as I possibly could with the entire rest of the race chasing me down. And I've got to say, it was so incredibly mentally stressful to spend days being hunted like that. But again, you know, the whole thing was just this revelatory experience of to discover what it's like to push myself that hard 
And thankfully, I was able to maintain that lead to the finish and and was able to finish in first place, um, which was which was uh, as I say quite revelatory given my background and how how I'd for so long carried around the idea I couldn't do this. And then that all brings me on to the the final thing, which in many ways is the, the meat of this book, uh, which was me saying to myself, "Okay, I've competed, I've I've won this international race, and maybe I am actually okay at this stuff." Uh, how can I go further? What's the next step for me? And the answer I came up with was to try and break the record for cycling across Europe as fast as possible. And how fast did you do it? Um, so I went from I went back to North Cape at the top of Norway, and I set out there and headed south, aiming for Tarifa, which is the southernmost point in Spain. So it's from the very top to the very bottom of Europe. Um, and I managed to do it in 16 days, 20 hours and 59 minutes. Um, so that was averaging 377 kilometers a day. Um, I was riding for 16 to 18 hours every day, um, pretty much a a nonstop effort. Uh, and then there's all sorts of extra challenges involved in this. So for example, because I wanted to do it as a Guinness world record, they place all sorts of restrictions on what counts uh, as a record attempt and critically one of the things is it must be continually overland so that raises all sorts of extra issues like uh, you have to go through Russia there's no way to get from the north to the south of Europe without going through Russia and you know that raised all sorts of interesting questions about um, customs and border controls and frankly, the astonishingly bad standards of St. Petersburg drivers. And then you got through Russia and you actually got through the, the, the checkpoints much quicker than you thought, didn't you? Yeah. So um, I, I'd read all sorts of stories about people going through uh, Russian border controls. And uh, in particular, the one that stuck with me was Sean Conway, who at one point broke the record for cycling east to west across Europe. And he'd written about... Uh, you know, being made to empty his bags out and wait around for hours. And, you know, um, it sound and, and I'd read various other stories from uh, previous cyclists who talked about just hours and hours of delay and bureaucracy and uh, aggressive border guards and being searched and questioned over and over again. Uh, and in the end, I turned up and uh, basically found this young Russian woman who was going through ahead of me. And I just sort of latched onto her and essentially pretended to be her boyfriend without her realising and uh, whistled through the whole thing in about five minutes, which was fantastic. So you mentioned roads there and the, and the very different. So you go from one border to another border and all of a sudden the roads are, are, are completely different. So where where were the best roads? Where were the worst roads? Oh, there's a question. Um Probably the best roads I've ever ridden were earlier on the transcontinental race, where I would say Austria and Switzerland have some of the greatest roads, just very well constructed, really great surfaces. And again, in the transcontinental race, uh, the worst roads by far had to be Macedonia. Um, You've got really long stretches that are just cobbled roads. and you bear in mind, I was hitting these after something like 12 days of sitting on a bicycle saddle. Um, 
doing 20 kilometers of cobbled road after you've been sat on a bike for two weeks is not much fun. Um, so they're, they're the worst. On the most recent journey, when I did the, the record for crossing Europe, um, probably the, the, the scariest roads, so the worst roads in terms of the traffic was definitely Russia in going through St. Petersburg. And they just have these vast, vast six, eight lane boulevards full of speeding traffic, people literally crashing into one another right next to me. Um, it, it was genuinely terrifying at times to get through there. Uh, one of the curious things was that a couple of days later, I found one of the easiest, fastest roads, which was in Latvia. And there's a section there where you're allowed to cycle on the motorway, on the freeway. Um, And to my surprise, that actually felt much safer than most of the roads, because ultimately a lot of roads, any any kind of reasonably substantial road, the traffic is going that speed anyway, you know, 100, 110 kilometers an hour, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour. Whereas on a typical road, you've got the traffic doing those speeds past you and you've only got a little bit of shoulder at the edge. Whereas on the motorway, you've got an entire lane to buffer you from the traffic and the speeds are essentially the same. So the motorway felt incredibly convenient and safe compared to typical roads. And then in Spain, you did a long stretch uh, before Sevilla, where there was a like a parallel road. So is that like a tip? You know, find a motorway and then find like a, an equivalent A road that's that's like uh, next to it. Yeah, I did that really deliberately. So uh, I what I did for the whole course, I looked for new motorways. And Spain has had a lot of new motorways built in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And I found this stretch that went for hundreds of kilometers where... There was the new motorway uh, built directly parallel to the what was the old main road. And the old roads are all still there. And it was just unbelievably convenient because the roads that have been replaced, they're still there. They're well surfaced. They're good quality roads. They pass through towns. There's shops. There's petrol stations. There's motels. All the facilities are still there from when they were main roads but there's hardly any traffic on them. So I just spent like three days gliding along these highways, uh, almost having them to myself with the incredible convenience of being able to stop and get food and water and so on whenever I needed to. So that is an absolute top tip. Look for motorways and look for the roads that they've replaced. Another top tip in the book uh, is the what you do when you go into a hotel. So, so describe how you get your uh, your bike past the receptionist. Well, this is a really good one, and in fact, uh, I mentioned that I was riding this weekend with a friend, and we we stayed in a couple of hotels this weekend, and I was able to demonstrate to him that this works. So, what I've discovered, and I think any of your listeners who've gone on cycling trips will probably have experienced this. The typical thing when you go in a hotel is you come up to the reception desk and the receptionist will say, uh, okay, you need to leave your bike outside. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I found uh, that just magically works almost every time is if you carry your bike in rather than wheel it in, they almost always let you take it into your room. I think when you wheel your bike in and you've got the clicking free wheel and it's making noise 
and they see the wheels going across the floor, it starts to make people ask questions and say, well, look, that thing's a vehicle that needs to be outside. I don't want that filthy thing in the room. Whereas if you carry it in, on the one hand, it's silent. And I think also it seems to send this message to people of, oh, well, you know, he's got it in his hands. It's just another piece of luggage. I guess it's fine if it goes to the room. And I, I've, since I discovered the secret of carrying bikes into hotels, I don't think I've ever been refused mm. taking it up to my room, which is just this magical little trick. It is a good tip. I mean, even if you're, you're, you're with a, a bike with lots of bags on, you could probably take them off before you go into the hotel and still do the same trick. You don't have to have a lightweight bike like you've got and uh, bike packing mm. bags. So yeah, let, let, we're kind of describing your route uh, in in stages here. We're kind of like we've, we've definitely segued away. But you're ne- you're now in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're on this wonderful motorway or, or, or road that's parallel to, to the motorway, and then you, you're very nearly at at the end. But then you have a meeting with uh, with your girlfriend. Mm. And you, how many kilometers have you still got to do? I mean, that must have been so, so numbing to do that after you've met somebody, after you haven't seen anybody for a long it, time. It was so hard. So something I, I learned a year or two earlier in my first big bikepacking race was I really learned, and I learned this the hard way, I learned that pushing through the night is a bit of a mistake. Um, and yet, you know, just to prove that we're all capable of being absolute idiots at times. As I came towards the end of the world record crossing, I failed to remember that lesson and decided I was going to push right through the night to get to the finish. So at this point, I'd I'd ridden something like 300 kilometers. It was another 200 to the finish. And I thought, come on, let's do this. Let's just, let's push through the night and get this done. And so I set off and basically, as I should have predicted, I just slowed down and I slowed down and my, you know, my speed plummeted. It became harder and harder. Uh, keeping myself focused and going forward became harder. You know, your, your body just wants to shut down at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and so I was pushing myself through this and my girlfriend and our parents had uh, arrived in uh, Spain the day before. And up to that point, I'd really deliberately said, no, don't come and meet me. I will meet you at the finish. I wanted to keep myself focused, keep myself in this little bubble of just me. Um, and so I thought if I met them, it might almost break the seal and and you know stop me being able to focus on just keep moving forward. But in the middle of that night, I just cracked. It was something like four o'clock in the morning. I was cold. I was hungry. I was really exhausted. I still had quite a long way to get to the finish. Uh, I was crawling along at a terrible speed on some really hilly roads. And I just cracked and I phoned Louise and said, do you you think maybe you could come and meet me after all? And um, so they came out and and we caught up with each other in a, 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 a nighttime car park outside a restaurant uh, and in some ways that was great. It was really nice to have somebody sort of pat me on the back and uh, tell me I wasn't far to the finish. But then on the other hand, it did, as you alluded to, it was it was almost mentally harder then because having that external world reappear and burst my bubble made me realize how far it was still to the finish. And it was still 
maybe four more hours of riding to the finish. Um, and that was the longest four hours you can imagine. Uh, so it was a really tricky one. It was it was really great to see them and get that that boost of seeing familiar people. But at the same time, it, there was an effect of the bubble bursting and being brought out of my own head after being in there for 16 days was a really dislocating experience. So a lot of this riding, a lot of what you, you talk about in the book is about what's in your head, because clearly uh, humans are capable of, of these feats of endurance. We know that we are physiologically capable of doing amazing things. You know, that's, that's just our uh, ancestors and, and, and living in the, in the forest have, have given us that and long distance running, etc. But then the modern person has then got to get round these in their head. So A, what are you thinking about? Uh, and B, are you using any psychological training? Is there any tips you can give us from your, your day job as to how to get through what can often be a, a, a grind? It, it is a grind. And uh, yeah, so to give uh, give the game away slightly, a really substantial chunk of this book is what I've learned along the way about how you deal with difficulty, how you deal with keeping yourself moving when you don't want to. Um, and, you know, I've really, partly from my own experience and partly from listening to other people with experience, um, I've managed to capture a whole load of information about ways you can do this. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is how what I've been able to do is use endurance sport as a kind of practice for suffering. And I think uh, other people have had the same experience of uh, how you can, you know, there are times in life when things are hard and there are times in life when keeping going can be difficult. Um, and endurance sport is a place where you can practice in a fairly safe, comfortable sort of way the techniques that you need to be able to keep yourself moving when life gets difficult. It's, it's almost, you know, it's like a, a dry run for coping with adversity and a way to test yourself and learn that you are able to keep going. You are capable of pushing on when things are really difficult, that you just need to find the ways that will motivate you and the ways that will keep you going forward. And so what I've done here is share all the various things I've come across that are good ways of keeping myself moving forward. Um, so sometimes, you know, that's as simple as breaking down the the task ahead of you. Um, so certainly when you're traveling a long distance under your own steam, you 100% can, can never, ever allow yourself to think about the destination. If you're trying to think about the end point, it's always, always too far away. The, the thinking about it will never be useful. Um, so it's all about breaking down the enormity of the task into tiny little sub goals, because each tiny little sub goal um, is a victory. And it might be that those sub goals, if, if it's really tough, those sub goals might be something as simple as getting to the next tree, getting to the next road junction. Uh, it might be that the, the sub goal is simply getting 30 meters further up the road, but that's fine. Uh, 
after that 30 meters, you've had a little victory and you're further on than you were before. And as long as you can keep yourself just in the moment, um, don't look too far ahead. Just keep yourself in the moment. Focus on something tangible and achievable, like reaching the next street sign. Um, that is amazing for keeping you going. Um, the other thing that I talked about quite a lot is the importance of acceptance. Uh, and this is where there's some overlap with my sort of more professional psychological world. Um, one of the things that I've really come to value from doing endurance sport is the the kind of pleasure or liberation. I'm not quite sure what the right word would be, but the there's a real joy in accepting difficulty. They're putting yourself in a difficult position and saying, this is it. It's going to be like this for a while. Um, it becomes pleasurable at the point you stop fighting the difficulty. If you're in a situation that can't get better, so if, you know, if I've put myself in a position where I'm 200 kilometers from the nearest source of food and it's the middle of the night or something like this, uh, and, and maybe I'm really tired and you know, I'm falling asleep and I, and, and I just want to stop moving, um, there's nothing to be gained by giving into that, uh, by, by fighting that. You know, if my circumstances are hard, just wishing they were different isn't going to make life better. Where What I find works for me is to give into it, to say, okay, yeah, I'm in a really tough situation here. Okay, that's fine. I accept the fact I'm in a tough situation and that allows me to keep moving. That that acceptance, that that giving into it um, frees you up. And as soon as you're freed from trying to fight your situation, dealing with the situation becomes wildly easier. So I loved the microcosm of, of life in the book in that if you do something incredibly hard, this then translates into in, into the real world. And I'm, I'm going to give you an anecdote now, if, mm. if you don't mind. So I'm, I've, I've been in my dim and distant past, I have been a long distance uh, cycle tourist. So I've, I didn't do it in, in record-breaking times. And I took lots of bags and stuff on the, but I have done, you know, cross uh, Europe and cross continental trips. I've also done 24 hour solo mountain biking in the past. So I know that kind of aspect of, of your book about going through the night. Again, it's not 16 days of it, but it's 24 hours and it's, it's, mm. it's, it's through the night. But it's the bit in your book where you talk about this is, you know, how you, you can you can treat your life like this if you do these endurance events. Uh, if, if you can do this, you can do anything in effect. And the anecdote is uh, one of my early tours in, in the UK, long before I, I did anything across Europe, was to go and see my sister in Nottingham. And I was living in Norwich at the time. It was only 100 miles. So it wasn't a, a huge distance, uh, but I had bags on because I was going touring. It's, so it's five in the morning and uh, it was very soon. I started having diarrhea Ooh. and I then had to go 105 miles with incredibly bad Ooh. stomach cramps. And that to this day is my worst ever ride for all of the, the the reasons you can imagine, like you know, disappearing behind you know haystacks and 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 the, just the sheer physical mm. discomfort of that, and and I didn't want to stop. I was just going to go ahead and, and do this anyway. I'm not going to turn back. And that 
was a life lesson for me in that, and I've always used that. That's always in my head. Whenever there is a, I do a tough ride, anything tough in life, I always go, and this is now it's 30, 40 years uh, since this happened, but I always go, yeah, but it's, it's not as hard as traveling through uh, the day with, with chronic diarrhea. So, so there you go, Ian. That's, that's, that's my anecdote on, on toughness. Now, in, in your book, you describe it as a, as a textbook. Uh, because of what you learn. So it's absolutely people will who buy this. And I do recommend they buy this book. Don't just take the anecdotes that Ian's giving you now because they're far, far funnier uh, in the book. Not that you're not funny in real life, Ian, but in the book, they're absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And I, I, what the anecdotes I want to get onto now, uh, and I'll read some of them out because they are they are just laugh out loud funny, some of them. And I, I've grouped them all together. Um, and, and maybe you can you can you can describe some of them yourself, uh, but it's the food. So clearly a cyclist has got to, to be fueled. So that's, that's absolutely top of your mind when, when you're riding. So when my question is, what are you thinking of? You're probably thinking about food <laughs> most of the time, but there's four anecdotes that I've, that I've picked out. Uh, and I'll, I'll describe them first, then we can, we can go into the greater depth. So here they are. It's, it's the seven day croissant. <laughs> It's the anecdote about uh, seagulls and fish and chips, or one seagull probably. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it's just one seagull. Uh, Latvia's one kilo bags of yogurt. I laughed out loud at that one, just imagining you doing this. Uh, and then the one in, one out policy. So we'll go backwards. Uh, what is your one in, one out policy, Ian, for saving time? Oh, th this is horrible. So if you're eating, I think you should probably put your food down now. Um, yeah, this was... On the record attempt, uh, one of the things that was going to make all the difference was being efficient with my time. Um, you know, that obviously I trained really hard, uh, but you very quickly realize there's a point where I there's a limit to how fast I can pedal the bike, um, but there's no limit to how much time I could waste off the bike. And one of the things I had to do was be really efficient and spend as little time as possible off the bike. Because if I'm on the bike and moving, that's forward progress. That's good. That's getting me towards the goal. And so I had this really strict uh, 30 minutes uh, rule for myself in the mornings that when I woke up, I had to be on the road within 30 minutes of waking up. And that might not sound much at the moment, but I, if, if that sounds easy, I challenge you to have a go at it uh, when that includes making breakfast getting dressed, servicing your bike, and so on and so on. So one of the things I hit upon uh, as a way of trying to get as much done as quickly as possible in the mornings was I started having breakfast while sitting on the toilet. So that was my one-in, one-out policy, was basically uh, shoving food in one end as yesterday's food came out the other end. <laughs> I, I don't know why you mentioned that, because that's just normal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that 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 was definitely funny, and and I can actually recognise that. That is that is yes. I won't I won't go any further than that. Right, Latvia's one kilo bags of yogurt. So what did you do to a? Why are these bags of yogurt so good? And what do you do with that? That made it so special in the book. Well, the thing is, when you're riding these sorts of distances, life just becomes entirely focused on finding calories. So, you know, I'm burning through eight thousand, ten thousand calories a day. Uh, on top of just whatever's needed to stay alive. So that is just a hell of a lot of food. And uh, especially after a few days on the road eating 
junk from petrol stations and stuff like this, um, you really start to lose taste for food. It becomes hard to make yourself eat after a few days of uh, vast amounts of cheap, nasty food. And one of the things I'd stumbled across when I crossed Latvia the first time during the North Cape 4000 race was in the supermarkets, they have these kilogram sacks of yogurt. And these are intended to last a family for a week. So, you know, the idea is you'd have a little squirt of this on your breakfast in the morning. Um, but this kilogram of yogurt, it's something like 1,200 or 1,500 calories in a bag. And it turns out you can rip the corner off the bag and just squirt the whole thing down your face in 10 seconds. Uh, so I was able to get something like 1,500 calories into me with one big squirt of this bag. The problem is it turns out uh, people don't think it looks very good when you've got witnesses. So at one point I came out of a supermarket and chugged a week's supply of yogurt in 10 seconds. And there's basically a village full of people staring at me in disgust. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't care. It was it was entirely functional and got the job done. Uh, that was wonderful. That that was. I'm laughing now, and I'm laughing when it was in the book as well. That was great. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna finish with the fish and chip uh, supper uh, anecdote uh, at last. But first of all, let's go to the seven day croissant. So, what's the seven day croissant? What, would you eat one now? <laughs> and uh, why was it so good for the trip? Well, the seven day croissant is almost like a, a talisman for long distance European cyclists. So what they are, they are these pre-packaged croissants that are sold all over Eastern Europe. So basically, basically <laughs> they used to be, kept, I'm now imagining they used to be hidden behind the Iron Curtain. And, they, uh, you know, as the Iron Curtain fell, then the seven days croissants were released. So basically you only find them in the old Eastern Bloc. Um, so, you know, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, places like that. And they're basically absolutely foul, but you can buy them in almost every single shop and petrol station. They're incredibly cheap and they've got a huge amount of calories in them. Um, and, you, you know, they're just convenient because you can just stuff them in your jersey pocket and eat them on the move and so on. So they are absolutely rancid. Uh, and I've just realized I'm not going to get a sponsorship deal this way, am I? But they taste vile, um, but they are so incredibly convenient for the fact you can just shove them in a pocket. You can buy them in every shop that I ended up eating them the whole time in Eastern Europe on the, all three trips. Would you eat one now uh, when you're away from the bike and away from this trip? Well, uh, I have actually eaten one quite recently. So uh, about a month ago, I cycled down to the South Coast where one of my friends lives um, and yeah, basically there and back in a day just to have lunch with him. And as a little surprise, he'd run off to the Polish shop the day before and bought me a couple of seven days croissants. And so I did eat them on the way home for all time. Oh, sake. very good. And then the final anecdote I'd like you to, to recount, and, and you've got to recount this cleanly in that you can't say the same word you said in the book. Um, you have to have some other uh -huh. euphemism, uh, some other way of, of expressing this. But talk about uh, this is a, tr a trip in Wales. Uh, and this is a seagull supper, we could say. Yeah, this was a ride. Actually, coincidentally, it was a ride I was doing exactly two years ago today because Google Photos reminded me this morning. Uh, so exactly two years ago today, I was doing a thousand kilometer ride with a friend in Wales. And 
we we were i think two days in at this point and we'd had a really tough day of climbing because wales is a hilly country and we were in a little town called bala uh towards the end of the day we still had maybe five hours or so to go and we stopped to eat and we got to the fish and chip shop in bala just as it was closing. So it was one of those real skin of your teeth moments where you're thinking, oh, if I'd been here just five minutes later, I wouldn't have been able to have any food. Um, so I got this fish and chips, massive fish and chip dinner. And we were sat on a bench outside and some huge zonking great bird just did the biggest plop across my dinner. Uh, and so you can just imagine my face as I'm starving hungry i've got the only hot food in town and i'm just watching seagull droppings erupt across my dinner but the thing is and this is one of those things that makes you wonder about long distance cycling i was so hungry i just pushed all the plop to one side and carried on eating um and that's the sort of animal that you become after a couple of days on the road and that was only going around wales that wasn't like crossing europe that was just uh three days in wales Okay, so I'm not making Ian give every single uh, part of the book away. There's still tons of people that, that people will find hilarious and, and fascinating in this book. So, but yes, that's a fantastic anecdote. And thank you for, <laughs> for give, 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 fleshing that out. And thank you also for the, the euphemisms for the word that you used in your book, <laughs> which actually I think an Anglo-Saxon phrase actually probably makes it funnier. Uh, but anyway, yes. That was excellent. Thank you. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be asking a question that I know the answer to, but uh, let, let's talk about it anyway. <clears throat> and that is uh, your coaching. So in, in previous rides, you didn't have a coach, but in the in the in the record attempt, you, you got coached. Mm. Yeah, it was a, it was genuinely a sort of a situation of not wanting to have any possible regrets. Um, you know, I, I, I knew I was almost certainly only ever going to try something like this once. Uh, and I, I, it became really important to me that if if things went wrong, if I didn't manage to break the record, um, I didn't want to have any regrets in the future. I didn't want to risk looking back on this as an old man and thinking, oh, do you know, I reckon I could have broken that record if only I'd done something different. Um, so I decided that the best way to leave no stone unturned was to find an expert. And I found a wonderful coach called Holly Sear, who's a very experienced cycle coach. Uh, and she was absolutely wonderful for um, helping me in all sorts of different ways, just get on top of the process, partly um, just making sure I did enough training of the right type, which of course is exactly what you'd hope from a coach. Um, but she was also very good at helping me think about logistics, thinking about how much I needed to eat and all, all those kind of things. Um, and so she fulfilled a whole role, a whole raft of different roles, um, partly just the raw physiological knowledge that's needed to make a good athlete. But also she was a sounding board. She was encouraging. Uh, she was a planner. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I really valued working with her on this. I want to talk about dot watchers now because I'm sure lots of people who are listening to this uh, potentially dot watched you. They might have dot watched other people. I've certainly dot watched my son who cycled back from 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 China, and he had one of these spot um, uh, GPS devices on. So just explain what a dot watcher is and and why they were very important to you, and how you sometimes met them on the road. Yeah, so I think 
uh, ultra distance cycling does actually have a slightly uh, hidden world of uh, spectators. And it's the, the thing that makes it slightly unusual is it's probably the only spectator sport that unfolds even slower than cricket. So, you know, cricket fans have got extraordinary patience watching an event unfold over five days. Uh, whereas the people who uh, enjoy watching endurance cycling, ultra endurance cycling, uh, they'll be watching races unfold over two weeks. And obviously, when a race is unfolding across an entire continent, uh, you can't televise it, you can't uh, watch it, and, and so on. So the way people follow the races is that the riders carry satellite trackers that upload their positions every five or ten minutes through communication satellites. And the race organisers will provide a map of the continent and you can see exactly where every rider is. And it's, you know, you've obviously had a go at this. I, I've watched other people's races and it's just, it's kind of strangely compelling, fascinating thing to sit at home, uh, refreshing your web browser every couple of hours and seeing how the race is unfolding, especially when you've got some of the races that allow riders to choose a route. So, for example, the North Cape 4000 race that I mentioned mm. earlier, that had a fixed route. We all had to follow exactly the same path. Whereas a race like the Transcontinental, you can go whichever way you want as long as you hit the checkpoints. And so there's such an excitement of going, oh, my God, look, she's gone that way and he's gone that way. I wonder who's going to get there first. And you'll sit there for maybe a day watching these two lines converge on the computer and, and it's just thrilling to see uh, see this thing unfold in such slow motion. Um, and so the people who who spectate on these ultra distance sports um, have become known as dot watchers. And one of the things that I, I just absolutely loved over the past few years is where you bump into them. So because, of course, there's this real asymmetrical relationship where they know where you are, but you don't know where they are. And every now and again, you'll just meet somebody in the street. So, for example, you know, on the transcontinental race, I was riding through a really old Slovenian city called Petui, which I think is how you pronounce it. Um, P-T-U-Y, if anyone wants to look it up, it's really beautiful. And as I rolled into the town, there was a young woman there and she just sort of waved and, and made a sort of stop, stop, stop gesture. And she'd been watching the race and she'd come out and she was greeting everybody who came through that town. Um, and similarly in other parts of the world, so you know, in um, uh, Serbia and in Italy and places like this, people would just appear out of nowhere and say, hey, you must be Ian. I've been watching you on the tracker. Uh, and it's just this absolute delight after, you know, maybe you've been riding for a week at this point and you've just spent seven days completely inside your own head uh focusing on the race and it's an absolute joy to have somebody just appear and drag you out of that for a few minutes and be reminded that you're part of this bigger event and so the dot watchers are just one of the most wonderful things about this sport but you're also a dot watcher certainly when you're doing it against other people, because you're watching where the people who are chasing you are, are, are coming. So that's also a, a demotivator for you or, or perhaps a motivator. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the things, uh, so I mentioned earlier that in the North Cape 4000 race, where I was able to take the lead with a, a thousand miles to go, uh, I became really quite obsessive about checking the tracker, 
because obviously you can look on your phone and see where the entire rest of the pack is. And it, it almost became unhealthy just how much I was fixating on where everybody else was. Um, especially because there were one or two riders whose trackers weren't updating very frequently. And so you know, the, addi- the additional stress uh, was quite considerable. I was in this position where I was pushing myself to the absolute physical limit in a way that I'd never done before. And then to have the additional mental anguish of worrying about where everybody else is and you know, are they catching me up? Are they going to appear around this next bend without me realizing it? Um, yeah, it became really, really quite um, a stressful thing. And in the end, I had to just stop myself looking at all. I, I just said, look, knowing where people are cannot change the outcome of this. All I can do is just ride as fast as I possibly can. And I just had to put the phone away and devote myself to just riding as fast as possible. Always uh, checking people like that uses battery life, which must be stressful in its own way because you are not always going to be at hotels. You're sometimes going to be sleeping in in um, well, all sorts of exotic and, and not so exotic um, roadside locations where you're not going to get electricity. So describe how you charge your electronic devices. And, and I know it's different in, in the later races because uh, you've, you've now got your own onboard electricity generation. But talk about how you, you originally did it and then why you went to, to onboard electricity generation. Yeah, so for the first of the two big races, for the Transcontinental and for the North Cape, I took just a, a big battery pack, a sort of uh, 20,000 milliamp hour USB battery pack. And I'd use that to recharge my bike computer, my phone, my lights. And it worked kind of okay. That would be enough power to get me two to three days of autonomous riding. Um, but the problem was, uh, I had a moment on the North Cape 4000 race where it really let me down at a bad moment. So it was maybe 11 o'clock at night. I was quite high in the mountains in Czechia. Um, and I, I just ended up low on power. Uh, and so I was forced into a hotel, um, you know, several hours earlier than I would have liked to, uh, just because, hotels were the only place you could get a good recharge uh, and so it really kind of threw a threw a spanner in my plans for that day uh, it led to me doing what I knew was a mistake which is sleeping at altitude because this was uh, just near the border with Poland and it's quite mountainous and the border is up on top of the mountains um, and sleeping high up is a mistake because it means that when you start the next day you're descending without doing any physical work in the cold air. So you always get really cold if you sleep at altitude. Um, and so having made that mistake and having you know, been caught out and having had to change my schedule to fit the needs of my battery pack rather than have the battery pack work for me, uh, I realized I needed to become more autonomous. And so I switched over to a dynamo system. And that has just been absolutely wonderful. It means I can run... A, a headlight on full brightness the whole time, which makes night riding so much safer and faster. Uh, it means I've got a USB charging facility so I can charge my computer and my phone. And and that autonomy um, just opens up options and it's always nice to have options. So even if I do end up sleeping in a, a hotel or whether I end up sleeping in a bus shelter, uh, I, I can, in principle, 
I can keep going indefinitely. And just knowing that I've got the freedom to go indefinitely if I want to removes a big source of anxiety and lets you ride much more efficiently. Mm. Uh, so the, the final question uh, is I'm going to, I'm going to come back to the first part of, of this show and, and that Ian, um, and that is when we're discussing the, the, the in the first part of the show, we're talking about how uh, uh, cycleways are the way to go. Um, distracted drivers and all sorts of aggression on the road is is not very nice. That's that Ian. That's the that's the cerebral Ian. And then if we come into this half of the show where we're talking about the the athlete Ian, the going across Europe as fast as you can Ian, that's an Ian that 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 is throwing all that out of the window because you're going on fast roads where you're going to guarantee to get these awful drivers. So how do you square? Those two circles, those two different Ians. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, And I don't know if I do entirely. Um, Certainly, as you've alluded to there, racing for long distances forces you to ask yourself some questions about which roads you will travel on. Um, Because I think for most people, given a free choice of going from A to B across a continent like Europe you would naturally seek out the back roads, the quiet lanes, um, for all sorts of reasons, partly because they're quieter and safer, but also they're often more scenic. Um, Whereas something I realized quite early on in my bike racing was if you want to go fast, that's not an option. If you want to go fast, you've got to take the bigger roads. Um, Now, having said that, one of the things I've realized is there are bigger roads and there are bigger roads and they're not all the same. Uh, and it's a little bit like with the motorway that I mentioned earlier. Um, a, I, I have found that, you know, a good wide, long straight road, uh, where there's plenty of space at the edge, they don't feel bad, you know, even with trucks going past and, and so on and so on. And lots of drivers, it doesn't feel particularly dangerous. Uh, probably the thing above all that determines how safe a road feels when you've got the bigger roads is just the width. So a nice wide road just means everybody's got some space to coexist. It's when things get narrow that um, it it doesn't feel as safe. But in terms of how I reconcile that with the, the professional road safety, Ian, um, I don't know. I, I just don't know what the long-term solution could be. I can't realistically imagine a situation where we're going to get uh, lovely, safe, efficient off-road uh, cycle facilities that travel long distances across a continent or even across a country. Um, and so to some extent, the solution will have to be getting drivers in check. Absolutely. Uh, now, that's going to be the end of the show there, Ian. So now is the point where we can plug your book uh, with actual details. So I want three things off you. I want where you can get uh, your book from, um, maybe from, from yourself, uh, I'm sure, because I've seen that on, on Twitter that you, you have author copies. You're quite happy to sign them. Uh, secondly, I want to know um, where people can find you on social media. And then thirdly, um, 
uh, websites uh, and, and specifically because we talked about um, the crate on the road. So where can people uh, read if, if that indeed is still a, a, a blog that's still going or it's still findable anyway. So those three things, Ian. Right. Three things. So first, the book, it's called Endless Perfect Circles. Um, it has all sorts of things in it. It's not just uh, anecdotes about crossing Europe. It's also all the lessons that I've taken from doing it. Um, how to cope with adversity, how to deal with difficult situations. Um, you can get that from pretty much anywhere you'd expect to get books. Um, in reality, the fastest place to get it is Amazon, um, who have it in stock and can get it to you sort of next day, uh, or obviously the Kindle version you can get instantly. Um, anywhere else that sells ebooks will have it. So Barnes and Noble, uh, Nook, all of those other places, they all have it. Uh, Kobo, uh, all have it for immediate download. Uh, in principle, any physical bookshop can get a copy. They, yeah, because it's independently published, they might not have it in stock, but they can order it, uh, if you ask. Uh, alternatively, if you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Ian Walker, uh, I can probably uh, send you a copy directly, um, but you might, be, to be honest, especially if you're not in the UK, you're probably going to find a bookshop uh, the easier way. So yes, yeah, so of where I am, uh, at Ian Walker on Twitter or at Ian Cycles a Lot on Instagram, um, or everything's pulled together in one place at my website, which is drianwalker.com, uh, which has links everywhere. And finally, if you do want to find that uh, article about uh, parking, uh, that's on my old blogspot uh, thing, which I've not updated for a long time, but does still exist. And it's bamboobadger.blogspot.com, um, which was a name that just popped into my head when I had to think of one very quickly. Uh, but if you go to bamboobadger.blogspot.com and search back to 2008, then I think you can find that article about parking cars. Yes, or just follow me because uh, I, I certainly uh, send that one out on Twitter quite a lot. I think it's a it's a very apposite and timely and perennial, sadly perennial mm. piece. Uh, Ian Ian Walker, Doctor Ian Walker, thank you ever so much for being on today's show. That has been absolutely fascinating, as the book is entertaining and fascinating in equal measure. So thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. My thanks to the one and only Dr Ian Walker for taking the time to talk with me there. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. The next show will probably be a round table with our usual suspects, attorney Jim Moss and my co-host David Bernstein. Meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs>